Lawyers are officers of the court with sworn responsibilities to uphold the legal system and work to ensure that it's effective. The legal profession has an institutional and professional responsibility to work to make sure that everyone has access to our legal system. Equal access to justice is a core American value. In each episode of Talk Justice, an LSC podcast, we'll explore ways to expand access to justice and illustrate why it is important to the legal community, business, government, and the general public. Talk Justice is sponsored by the Leaders' Council of the Legal Services Corporation. Welcome to Talk Justice, an LSC podcast. I'm Ron Flagg, president of Legal Services Corporation. I'm excited to be joined today by David Tatel, currently a senior judge on the United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit. Judge Tatel has devoted over five decades to public service. In 1969, he left the law firm of Sidley Austin to serve as founding director of the Chicago Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law. Judge Tatel later went on to become director of the National Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law. And as we'll discuss shortly, he was instrumental in the formation of the Legal Services Corporation and also served as general counsel for LSC. During the Carter administration, Judge Tatel joined the U.S. Department of Health, Education, and Welfare as the director of the department's Office of Civil Rights. He worked in the government until 1979 when he joined the law firm Hogan and Hartson, where he founded the firm's education practice. President Clinton nominated Judge Tatel to the D.C. Circuit in June 1994, and he was confirmed by a Senate voice vote. Judge Tatel recently announced that he will be stepping down from the D.C. Circuit next month to rejoin his old firm, now known as Hogan Lovells. Judge Thanks so much for joining me today. You have a truly long, distinguished, and varied background in public service. But of course, because of my day job, I'm particularly interested in your work with LSC. LSC is about to celebrate our 50th anniversary, and I can't think of a better person to talk to about that. Can you talk about the creation of LSC, your various roles in LSC's creation, and the uh, controversies that arose at creation. Sure. Well, first of all, Ron, it's a total pleasure to be here with you this morning. The uh, Legal Services Corporation is uh, an important institution, and and uh, and because of my involvement in it, I feel I feel very close to it, and thrilled that it's about to celebrate its 50th anniversary. What an accomplishment! I can tell you, <laughs> back at the beginning. There were times when we weren't sure it was going to get to its fifth anniversary. So at the time I got involved, this was uh, 1975, um, I was back at Hogan and Hartson. And the president, Jerry Ford at the time, had finally gotten around to appointing the uh, board of the Legal Services Corporation. As maybe your, your listeners under 50 may not know that Government-funded legal services began in the mid-60s as part of the Office of Economic Opportunity, which was the uh, agency that ran Lyndon Johnson's War on Poverty. And it was headed by Sarge Shriver, who was, as you, I'm sure, remember, a John Kennedy brother-in-law. And Sarge 
Sarge felt very strongly that OEO's poverty programs needed a legal services program. And so they created a nationwide network of legal services offices, uh, neighborhood legal services offices all around the country. And it was coordinated out of OEO in Washington. And in addition to neighborhood legal services office, they created about a dozen so-called backup centers, which were affiliated with law schools. They were nonprofit, like think tanks, which focused on different areas of poverty law. So there was one on consumer law in New York. There was an education law backup center at Harvard. There was a housing program at Berkeley. Uh, There was a youth law program. There were 12 of these around the country. And they were were quite wonderful organizations. They were, the lawyers who worked there were bright, young, committed lawyers working on legal theories and doing research and developing ideas for litigation and working closely with legal services lawyers around the country. So if, for example, a legal services lawyer in Chicago had a particular, say, for example, housing issue, uh, that lawyer could contact the backup center in Berkeley, and they would work together on the case. And um, the backup centers were were a real hotbed of creative legal thinking about uh, legal services for the poor and constructive remedies. Because legal services became politically controversial in OEO, especially because of the backup centers, Congress decided to shift legal services, OEO legal services, from a government agency to a private nonprofit corporation. And it passed the Legal Services Corporation Act in 1974. And the idea was to get legal services out of politics. Congress thought that if it was in a nonprofit with its own independent presidentially appointed board, it would be less subject to political interference and to threats of closing it down. And under the statute, Although President Nixon signed the bill, he never got around to appointing the board. And then, of course, he resigned. In fact, I think the Legal Services Corporation bill may have been the last the last act he ever signed, or if not, one of the last. Yeah, that's true. Is that right? Yeah. And then uh, President Ford, <laughs> it took a while for him to get the board appointed. Uh, he had a few failed attempts. But in any event, by the spring of 75, he had a board. And once the board took office or was sworn in, Under the statute, that triggered a 90-day transition period. By the way, I was there when the board, the new board took its oath of office. Justice Powell came over. You know, Justice Powell had, when he was the president of the ABA, had been instrumental in supporting legal services. And so he came over to administer the oath to the new board members. And that triggered a 90-day transition period, during which the corporation was to establish itself and work with OEO to transfer the entire legal services program from OEO to the new corporation. The chairman of the board was Roger Crampton. Roger at the time was the dean of the Cornell Law School and had been a strong supporter of legal services throughout his whole career. He originally, he began teaching at Michigan. He was the head of the Office of Legal Counsel in the Justice Department. He had a very distinguished career, and um, he was appointed as chair of the board. And I knew Roger from my days at Michigan. And so they needed an interim president. 
And uh, Roger reached out to Louis Oberdorfer. Lou was a partner in Wilmer Cutler and Pickering at the time. He had been a assistant attorney general during the Kennedy administration, during Robert Kennedy's Justice Department, and had also been the co-chair of the National Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law. Lou was one of the leading lawyers in Washington in public interest in civil rights law. He was a senior partner at Wilmer Cutler, but spent a huge amount of his time and his firm's energies on civil rights. And he happened to be on sabbatical at this time. So Roger asked Lou if he would be the interim president and get things going. And he agreed. And the first thing he did was ask me to come and work with him on the program. I, as I said, was at Hogan at the time. Lou and I had worked very closely uh, when I was director of the, Nas- of the National Lawyers Committee. And so his idea was that he would be the sort of acting president and I would become the acting general counsel. And that uh, we would pull together a staff during that 90-day period and, and get going. So we, um, we opened up a tiny office uh, at 19th and K Street. It was a suite of maybe six or seven offices. And it was Lou and me, and OMB has a program where they provide management assistance for the creation of new government entities, including government nonprofits. They gave us a couple of people who were very helpful because they understood the intricacies of government in ways we didn't. We had two interesting characters working with us. When Lou was in the uh, Kennedy Justice Department, as you remember, Ron, Kennedy administration faced a serious problem of how to, how to get the Bay of Pigs prisoners released. And the deal they worked out was that in return for releasing the... Uh, prisoners, the government would arrange for organizations in the United States to contribute a significant amount of food and medical assistance to the Cuban government. And Lou was in charge of that. He was in charge of collecting millions of dollars worth of equipment. And he, he worked with two people in that effort that he brought to legal services with us. One was a fellow named Bob Shea, who was the head of international disaster relief for the Red Cross. And the other was a fellow named Don Kopeck, who was the head of the Border Patrol. I had no idea why these people were there. But Lou liked them, and fortunately we didn't need Bob Shea's international disaster relief assistance in creating the corporation. So we went about working on, uh, getting to work on this. Our, our very first task, we had to create the corporation. So, you know, we, we filed all the papers to create a D.C. nonprofit corporation, and then we had to get a tax exemption. And uh, Lou's firm, Wilmer Cutler, prepared the tax exemption, and I actually walked it over to the local IRS office and filed it. So we had to create the corporation. And then, um, then we had two really major administrative things we had to deal with right away. One was that we needed to figure out how to get, I think the appropriation at that time from Congress for OEO legal services was maybe around $80 million. We had to figure out how do you get $80 million from the Congress to the Treasury and into a D.C. nonprofit. And the second issue, figuring out whether the corporation would be subject to what was called the Anti-Deficiency Act, which 
control the flow of appropriated money from Treasury to federal agencies. It, it controlled the flow of it throughout the fiscal year. And we were especially sensitive and careful with this because violations of the Anti-Deficiency Act carried criminal penalties. So to work this out, Lou sent us over to see the Attorney General, who was at Levy. We went in to see him, and he was extremely supportive. And he took us down the hall to meet the Assistant Attorney General in charge of the Office of Legal Counsel, who he said would help us figure out any uh, tricky legal issues we had. And that was, at the time, Antonin Scalia, who, of course, eventually ended up on the Supreme Court. He was also very helpful, and, and with his help and his staff and the people to Treasury, we worked out the system by which the money would flow, the appropriated money would flow to the Legal Services Corporation and, and that the corporation would not be subject to the Anti-Efficiency Act. Let me interrupt you there because your uh, memo, which uh, I still have on the Anti-Deficiency Act, actually had real application within the last few years when there was a suggestion that a past administration might want to rescind the uh, LSC appropriation from Congress under the uh, Anti-Deficiency Act. And I was able to persuade them pretty readily, citing all of the uh, points you made in your memo, that we were not a government agency and that, in fact, as soon as the appropriation was enacted, the money belonged to LSC. It was no longer federal funds. <laughs> so thank you for that memo. It's still good law. Well, I'm glad I haven't seen it for 50 years. So uh, I'm glad it still has legs. By the way, I should have said, Ron, I'm sure your listeners know this. I mentioned Attorney General Ed Levy. He is, of course, the father of John Levy, the chair of your board. And uh, there's hardly anybody who has been more instrumental in in keeping the Legal Services Corporation alive and well than John Levy. And I love the fact that, you know, it was his dad that enthusiastically welcomed us in his office and, and got us started on, on solving these really uh, tricky issues. And Justice Scalia came back for our 40th uh, anniversary and uh, was one of our keynote speakers. And you were there as well. But continue with your history. Yeah, I was. So there were several... I mean, this 90 days was extremely intensive. But maybe I'll just mention a couple of things that we focused on that your listeners might be interested in. Well, the first was that, you know, we, we had to write all the regulations for the new corporation. It didn't have any. Now, NLADA and other groups had done a fabulous job of writing these ahead of time. They had their versions of it. They were very helpful. And, you know, these regulations, we had to figure out you know, how to incorporate the restrictions in the act. And these were, in, in every sense, the corporation's DNA. And we spent a great deal of the summer working on the regulations and bringing them to the board and putting them out for notice and comment. And as I said, that took, that took a great deal of time. Then the second thing we had to do was we had to get the program moved from OEO to the corporation. And that required two different moves. One was that legal services lawyers didn't work for the government. They worked for grantees, just like the way the corporation now gives grants that support neighborhood legal services programs. Then also, OEO would give a grant to a poverty organization or a university to run a legal services program, and that program would hire the lawyers. So 
we needed to transfer these hundreds of grants from around the country to the corporation. And that was all done by regulation. And there were a few tricky issues, but basically we got that done without a whole lot of problem. The other side of it, though, was that the Office of Legal Services in OEO had a staff of, I think, about 40 lawyers. This was headquarters for the program, equivalent to the corporation. They were, in fact, government employees. And there were, I think, seven or eight regional offices. And so we had to interview uh, those people and decide which ones we would bring from OEO to the corporation. And um, that was largely my job. I interviewed all the regional directors, and I think we offered jobs to all of them. The most important was Dan Bradley. Dan was the head of the Atlanta office, regional office for OEO. Dan was, Dan was just a spectacular leader of legal services, uh, and he was viewed as such by legal services lawyers throughout the country. We had a serious problem in San Francisco, and I asked Dan whether he would go to San Francisco and help clean that up, and he did. And the other reason for mentioning Dan is, of course, he became the, uh, I think, the second president of the Legal Services Corporation. If you're looking for heroes of the legal services program pre-corporation and its creation and post-creation life, you, you couldn't do better than to focus on Dan Bradley. The third thing we had to work on, uh, I mentioned the backup centers. So the backup centers were a big problem. They were the source of all the political opposition. Uh, Richard Nixon, Ronald Reagan, all of them, they hated the backup centers. They thought the backup centers were centers of intellectual development of issues that would be used to challenge corporations and government agencies, which is largely correct. Um, That's what they were doing. And they were very, very unpopular in conservative political circles. In fact, Richard Nixon, as I recall, vetoed the first Legal Services Corporation bill because he wanted the backup centers gone. So the way they solved this problem is they added something to the act called the Green Amendment. And the Green Amendment was Congress's way of getting rid of the backup centers. And what it did was it said that the corporation could conduct training and assistance directly and not through grants or contracts. That was their way of getting rid of the backup centers. Well, they didn't understand that the backup centers were actually doing legal work, not just training and technical assistance. And so we put together a a team headed by Al Polikoff in Chicago, a very well-known public interest lawyer. We visited every backup center in the country and we developed, uh, summarized their work and proved that what the backup centers were actually doing was legal services, not training and uh, technical assistance. And based on that and the legal opinion I, I wrote for the corporation, the corporation agreed to continue funding the backup centers. And just to be totally sure, we changed their names to support centers. But the backup centers after that continued for a decade, uh, providing really innovative and interesting work. I think they're all technically no longer uh, LSC grantees, but four or five of them still exist as independent entities. And just the final thing I'll say, Ron, is that we, uh, one of our uh, major tasks during the summer was to find a president for the corporation. And we supported the board's efforts in that undertaking. As you know, we 
ended up focusing on and hiring two wonderful people, uh, Tom Ehrlich, who was a dean at Stanford, and Clint Bamberger, who <clears throat> was one of the leading legal services lawyers in the country. Tom was president. Clint was executive vice president. And then the 90-day the period ended, and uh, we handed the baton from the transition team to the corporation. And um, as they say, the rest is history. Well, thanks for the history, and thanks for uh, laying a great foundation. We're still here to celebrate our 50th, and as I said, uh, at least one of your legal opinions literally served as uh, a great resource as recently as a few years ago. Let me actually take a step back from LSC, per se, uh, and talk sort of more about our mission. The first sentence of the U.S. Constitution says, the people of the United States do ordain and establish this Constitution to, among other things, quote, establish justice, end quote. And the founders mentioned establish justice even before a host of other priorities, including, quote, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and securing the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. So we start out our nation's history with high aspirations and high priorities when it comes to establishing justice. My question is, we're now 235 years or so beyond the uh, drafting of the Constitution. How do you think we're doing in establishing justice at this point? Well, it's the old, you know, glasses half full story. Obviously, in many respects, this nation's judicial system is, is the best in the world and I think is fulfilling at least part of that commitment. The problem is, and this is where the Legal Services Corporation plays such an important role, the problem is, is even with the resources that the corporation has and even with the state and local legal services programs, um, the vast number of poor people who need a lawyer can't get one. And you can't have a system that's a system of justice where a substantial percentage of your population has no access to your court system. That's not justice. I think that's a serious problem in our country. It's one, Ron, I know that you've worked on for years and I've worked on also. Many good people have tried to solve this problem and we still have a very long way to go. But until we do, until everybody who has a legal problem, can access the courts, we, we don't have a system of justice or a complete system of justice. So let me follow up on that. Obviously, as, as you say, you and I have both been thinking about this and acting on it over the many years. You've held niches in many different parts of the judicial and justice system. So I'd like to get your uh, take on the proper roles of the various elements of the legal profession and our justice system in helping to establish justice. Let's start with the courts, uh, where you've been on the D.C. Circuit now almost 30 years. Uh, what's the role of the courts in establishing justice? Well, if, you know, if you come to my court and watch an oral argument, that's justice being done. That's what it's all about. The problem, as I said, is that many people don't have access to that court system because they can't get lawyers. I, I think the only thing the court system can do, the judicial system, of course, is to advocate for 
more money for legal services and work to help expand the sources. The legal, the, uh, the court system can, we can appoint lawyers in cases, but, and we can encourage it, but there's really nothing the courts as courts, other than the decisions they make, which of course is critical in terms of the kinds of rulings we issue that affect justice, but as an institution in terms of lawyers for people who need them, courts have, I think, the insignificant role. There are other entities that play a much, should be playing a much larger role. Yeah, let me just quibble with you on on one detail in that, particularly in the state courts, the state trial courts, which there are literally tens of thousands, have thousands of forms. And to the extent uh, the courts create more uniform and more user-friendly forms, uh, that has an impact on the ability of both people trying to represent themselves as well as pro bono, as well as legal aid lawyers to more or less easily access the courts. But, you know, that's just an additional detail I would point out. And uh, I don't that's... think that's a detail. And I'm glad you said that, Ron. And thank you for the correction. I suffer from same problem most federal judges do is that we think we're the center of the universe and we forget that most justice is in fact not done in the federal courts and that there are 50 state systems out there that are doing much more than we are. And you're absolutely right about that. And I know the corporation and other groups have worked with state courts to try to make the system easier to use. And that's very important undertaking. So let's talk about another element of our legal system, and that's the lawyers and the organized bar. Well, what, what's, what do you view as, and I've, I've heard you talk about this, so I, I'm always interested in your comments. What, what's the, the role of the legal profession in establishing justice, and in particular, trying to bridge this justice gap, which you described? Well, I think that's the, the, the legal profession is the entity that is most responsible for solving this problem. You know, we have a closed system. You have to pass the bar to practice law. It's the legal profession that sets, establishes ethical standards. And the profession has a monopoly on the practice of law. And lawyers are officers of the court. Lawyers aren't like, you know, companies that sell products. Lawyers are officers of the court with sworn responsibilities to uphold the legal system and work to ensure that it's effective. So the legal profession, I think, has an institutional and professional responsibility to work to make sure that everyone has access to our legal system. Now, for decades, the legal profession has advocated in Congress for more money. The legal service, the ABA played a critical role in creating the corporation in the first place. Lewis Powell was the president. And, and that is extremely important. Uh, the advocacy from the profession is extremely important. And there are lawyers all across the country who on an individual basis or a law firm basis are doing quite a bit to try to fill this gap. That is to try to make sure that people who are poor or whose issues are unpopular have access to the courts. I'm returning to a firm that I think is doing about as much as any law firm could. But that's clearly not enough for the legal profession. We still have this huge gap. I think the number is 
always been around 80%, Ron, if that's still the case, that 80% of poor people who need legal services can't afford them. Well, it's actually gotten worse. It's it, uh, In our 2022 justice gap study, it was up to 92%. It's 92%. Yeah. And this isn't just a problem of the poor anymore. Low and middle income people can't afford the fees the legal system charges. So we have a big problem. The legal profession is basically serving, except for the setting aside the exceptions I mentioned earlier about all the wonderful pro bono work and individual work lawyers doing, setting aside that, the legal profession is basically providing its services to the people in this country who can pay. And I think that is a failure of its responsibilities. I think the profession has to step in and it has the resources to do that. The annual revenues of the legal profession, I think, are, are enormous. They're in the billions. And a small percentage of what the legal profession earns could help double the budget of the Legal Services Corporation. But for whatever reason, the profession has never... Well, now, there are exceptions to this. In Washington, for example, under Peter Edelman's leadership, there's a program here where I think 20 or 25 law firms are contributing a significant percentage of their income to legal services in D.C., if that program, if what that program was doing in D.C. could be done nationally, Ron, they could double your budget. Yeah, it's called the Raise the Bar program, and uh, you can Google the D.C. Uh, Access to Justice Commission to hear more about it. They could double your budget. Let's uh, turn to your judicial service. You've served for nearly 30 years on the uh, D.C. Circuit. What are some of your fondest memories and uh, most memorable cases. And I, <laughs> I realize uh, trying to summarize 30 years worth of highlights uh, in a few minutes is uh, a daunting task. Oh, that's so hard. Uh, I, I have loved all 30 years. I can't say I've loved all, you know, 2,000 or 3,000 cases I've heard, but most of them. What's interesting, Ron, about at least to me, about the role of a judge is that, you know, I could list for you a whole series of really important cases that, opinions that I've written. I wrote three major net neutrality opinions. I wrote several of the major voting rights cases. In fact, my two major cases in Northwest Austin and Shelby County both got reversed by the Supreme Court. I've written some of the, some of the most important environmental cases and that's fun and exciting, but to me, almost every case is interesting. The process of hearing a case, reading the briefs, and producing an opinion that resolves it as a proper judicial action, that is, applies law to fact, and does it in a way that is understandable to the public and, and the people who, who are affected by these decisions, that's a thrilling process. I really, I like that, and I like that. That's as much fun in a major voting rights case as it is, you know, in a little housing case. The process is always the same, and that's what I've always enjoyed about the job. Well, and I can tell you the uh, landlord or the tenant in your little housing case uh, probably cares as much about the outcome as uh, the folks affected by your, your voting rights and environmental decisions, so. This is absolutely right. And, you know, I, I've written quite a few opinions involving access to the, to the Medicaid system, denial of Social Security benefits to individuals, 
denial of housing. We, we get those cases in the D.C. Circuit. And to me, they're just as important as the big environmental cases. So as you mentioned, and I mentioned, you recently announced that you'll be stepping down from the court in August and joining. Uh, well, sometime, yeah, August, the date's still a little open the air, and I will be eventually joining Hogan. Uh, we're still trying to work out exactly when. It might not be till early next year, but, but I will be going back to the firm. That's where I started. Well, I started at Sidley, where you came from, Ron. But when I came to Washington, I ended up at Hogan in their pro bono program back in the 70s. And it seemed a good place for me to return. Well, you know, I got to say, because you were quoted recently as saying returning to Hogan is, quote, a true homecoming. And I got to say, if you were looking for a homecoming, we we could have found something for you here at LSC. Uh, Ron, but, you, uh, you, you, you should have called. You would have tempted me, <laughs> truly. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let me ask you one last question. And I know it's a question you get all the time from aspiring law students or aspiring lawyers who say, Judge, please give me some advice as to whether I should do this or how I should do this. So when you're asked that question, what's your advice? Well, in answer to that question, obviously, anyone who answers that question is going to pretty much reflect his own experience. And I would say, and I say this to young lawyers, um, number one, get a job where you can you can develop your legal skills. That's the most important thing for you right now is you know, you've been to law school, you've learned the law, but you need to learn to practice law. And there are many institutions where you can do that, law firms, government agencies, but pick one where you'll learn and become a better lawyer. That's number one. Number two, for me, Ron, law practice is more complex now than it was when I got started. And law firms and government agencies are very different places. For me, it was very important to have early on gotten involved in the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights, because not because it was a Lawyers Committee, but because it was an organization in which I could grow and find my own mentors and role models. I essentially grew up in the Lawyers Committee, and it played a major role in not only helping me, teaching me to practice law, but in sort of every step of my career. So my, my second piece of advice to young lawyers is find an organization like that. Find something that you care about and that you can throw yourself cells into that has a mission that you're comfortable with and stay with it. Because an organization like that, whether it's the you know, Lawyers Committee or the LDF or the ACLU or an environmental group or whatever, and these work for whether you're a liberal or a conservative, there's a lot of Find something like that that gives you a center for your work. And I don't mean where you work. I just mean a place to be with other like-minded people. And finally, you know, don't forget, as I said earlier, that you're an officer of the court. You have obligations to our legal system and that wherever you go to a corporation, the government or a law firm, you have a professional obligation to help make sure this legal system works for everybody. Judge, thanks so much for joining me today, but that's the least of your contributions. Thank you for a career in public service. And uh, obviously, thank you for uh, getting LSC off to uh, 
such a good start. Uh, we still have your articles of incorporation and uh, <laughs> and your memo on the Anti-Deficiency uh, Act, which we're grateful for. So thank you and best of luck uh, in your new uh, your new gig. Well, thank you, Ron. It's been a pleasure. And, and congratulations to you, too, for doing such a fabulous job of running this really important institution. Thank you. Podcast guest speakers' views, thoughts, and opinions are solely their own and do not necessarily represent the Legal Services Corporation's views, thoughts, or opinions. The information and guidance discussed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice. You should not make decisions based on this podcast content without seeking legal or other professional advice.